You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to another week on Commute, the podcast. Man, another week, another commute. We are here for you. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we welcome you into our weekly audio experience where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of the average commute. We want to make your time in the car or doing whatever you may be doing just a little bit better. Also, you can visit us anytime online at our website, commutethepodcast.com. This week on Commute, on September 9th, 2014, Apple thought it was making a beautiful day for iPhone users when actually they still hadn't found what anyone was looking for. Maybe they should have looked under the Joshua tree, huh? We discussed that time Apple messed up big time. Should you be worried about flashing your headlights at other cars driving on the road at night? For 30 years, many have said yes, but where did this fear come from, and does it have any basis in reality? We've all binged a show long after its live run was complete, right? I mean, I've rewatched The Office at least 15 times. But do the actors keep getting paid? We discuss our first listener-submitted question. All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's get it. So, Jay, give me a little credit on that U2 open. That was, that was a piece of Yeah, art. I mean, you probably worked in all four U2 song titles that you know. <laughs> really quick, I used to work for a baseball team. And when I did, um, it was uh, probably 2011, 2012. This is when U2 was doing all baseball stadium um, concerts. And I saw somebody actually pay somebody $2,000 for a ticket. I had never heard of, or I'd never seen anyone exchange that kind of cold, hard cash for a ticket. One single ticket to see U2. That is absolutely outrageous. But do that many people still love you two? We are going to dive in. So, Jay, let's take a trip back in time to the day before my birthday in 2014. Okay, so September 9th. On this day, something very interesting happened for Apple iPhone users in 119 different countries. It was a big day for Apple. It was a memorable day for the band U2, and it was a surprisingly angry and frustrating day for most of those Apple iPhone users. So Jay, for those unfamiliar with the situation, at the Apple release event in September of 2014, Tim Cook, the CEO from Apple, was joined by Bono and the boys from the legendary rock group U2. Cook announced the iPhone 6, and I think right now we're on what, the iPhone 13? Uh, And he made the first ever announcement in mention of the Apple Watch, promptly delaying its release until the next year. But then, but then he said he had one special surprise left up his sleeve. Now, it had long been rumored leading up to the event that U2 would be present for this Apple event. Theories were of the plenty, but most figured that U2 would play a song for the event, and that was it. Bono and former Apple head honcho Steve Jobs were known to be buddies. And U2 even famously appeared in the 2004 release video for the iPod and gave the iTunes music store, right in its infancy, some legitimacy when the public really wasn't sure how to feel about downloading and paying for music. So back to the event. To make a long story short, Tim Cook announced that yes, U2 would play. They did. He then dubbed their single, The Miracle, as, quote, the most incredible single ever. So we channel a little Donald Trump there. Yeah, it's being a little little too generous. (laughs) Have you ever heard The Miracle? 
it was it on the the album that was on my phone? It, yeah. So you probably okay, still well, have that album. If on it your was phone. the opening track, you know, I probably heard about ten seconds or so. But we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But he then announced that the U two album that was releasing Songs of Innocence would be downloaded automatically and for free on every iTunes subscriber's phone estimated to be a half billion people at the time of the event. The album downloaded right that second for free on every iPhone. According to the New York Times, the move cost Apple around $100 million to pull off. And while 33 million people actually listened to the album in its first week, I think that's about 6%, sadly, of all the uh, iPhones uh, at that time, the backlash was immediate. Instead of seeing the album as a free gift, most iPhone users viewed it as an extreme invasion of their privacy. Wired Magazine even called the move devious and worse than spam, while Salon.com claimed that the move now made U2 the most hated band in America. So, Jay, people hated it so much that Apple actually released instructions a week later on how to delete the album from your phone. Bono even apologized for the stunt, saying, hey, art- I'm not going to do the accent. Artists are prone to that kind of thing. Drop of megalomania, touch of generosity, dash of self-promotion, and a deep fear that these songs that we poured our lives into over the last few years might not ever be heard. There's a lot of noise out there, and I guess we got a little noisy ourselves. U2 is a menace, okay? I'll tell you, like, I remember (laughs) that 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 album came onto my phone unprompted. And I, it was so like, I couldn't shake it. And like, I was probably in the same boat as everybody else. Like I hadn't really downloaded anything from iTunes before. And so it was the only thing in my iTunes library. So anytime I got in the car for like three years, the first notes of that song of innocence album would just start automatically playing. Like when my phone Bluetooth connected to my car, I get the outrage, like burn them all down, man. I still have it on my phone. I can't believe it. I I, I it's should you like can't now. It's because you like can't delete it. Like I tried to delete it so many times. Like I would delete it off my iTunes, and I'd be like, "Yep, I finally did it." And then I'd get in the car, and then the opening notes back. again, and be like, <laughs> or whatever it was, and uh, I was immediately just filled with rage again. And uh, now I'm kind of worried that I'm going to get uh, spammed with email, uh, hate mail more specifically from you uh, two fans in the audience. So, you know, don't come you at will. me. I just feel very passionately that, you know, they shouldn't have, uh, they shouldn't have forced their album on me. That's, hey, that's I'm, still getting, I'm still getting messages about the aliens. That <laughs> people are still upset they don't believe in aliens. Uh, you deserve that one. So, Dave, have you ever heard the urban legend that if you're driving at night and you see a car without their headlights on and you flash your lights at them to tell them that they don't have their headlights on, that there's a possibility that the people in that car will come and kill you? Yeah, this is one of those things that I can't believe anybody else has ever heard. I thought it was just kind of something that went around my hometown. And then as I got older, I realized, no, 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 wait, this is everywhere. Everyone has heard some version of this. And so the version that I heard was that if somebody passes you and their headlights are off, off and you flash your headlights to tell them their headlights are off, they were part of a gang and that they had come to your city to look for people to kill. 
Um, and that, that was the person that they would choose to kill for some strange reason. Yeah, it's a story that's so much more widespread than you think it is. So let me kind of tell you a little bit about the history of it. And, uh, you know, urban legends and conspiracy theories stick with us because our fears are very real to us. And this one urban legend in particular, it really sticks out to me because I remember hearing it from a lot of trusted people in my life growing up and at the time not necessarily questioning its validity. And so uh, we're talking about the gang initiation killing myth. And, you know, if you're nodding your head in agreement right now because you know what I'm talking about, it's because this urban legend has appeared in nearly every U.S. city throughout Europe, Mexico, and Canada over the course of the last 20 to 30 years. And if you're unfamiliar with the tale, it goes something like this. If you're driving at night and you see a car with no headlights on, be very careful about choosing whether or not to flash your bright lights at them and let them know. According to the legend, gangs would drive around at night with no headlights and immediately target the first car that flashed their lights at them, hunting them down and killing everyone inside the car as a gang initiation ritual. And Dave, I'm not going to lie. When I see a car driving without its headlights today and I think about flashing my bright lights at them, there's still like 1% of my brain that sends up caution signals. I don't know why, uh, and I can totally understand that, but for some reason, it's just the way that I'm wired. Like when somebody does that, I immediately get mad. Even if my headlights are off and they're helping me, just something happens. It's kind of like if I'm at the red light and it turns green and I'm doing something, I'm not paying attention, someone gives me a courtesy honk, I get mad. I'm not sure why. Although the story first appeared in print in 1993, the anecdote has been floating around as early as the mid-1980s in Montana and Oregon and ranges anywhere from an initiation for the Hell's Angels or the Bloods to black and Latino gangs targeting white drivers to Mexican drug cartels initiating new members. And the myth picked up steamed through the 90s and in the mid-2000s as more and more people embraced email as a streamlined form of communication, finding its way into many inboxes forwarded by loved ones out of concern. And some police stations throughout the country even bought in on the story, posting PSAs as warnings to the community, telling members to be on the lookout for this sort of activity. And fax machines were even used to spread this myth in offices, homes, and public spaces as the legend gained more credibility and steam with every forward. Now, as you would imagine, to this day, there are no documented cases anywhere in the world that this sort of behavior exists. So how has this urban legend, which has survived for over 30 years, continue to have staying power in our minds? And why- Because gangs are that good. <laughs> yeah, I guess. G- gangs are that good. Yeah. Why do other urban legends continue to spread too, despite the lack of evidence? So stop me if you've heard any of these, Dave, because I've seen most of these on my Facebook feed before. Okay. Okay. HIV or COVID positive needles are being placed under gas station pump handles and movie theater seats, pricking unsuspecting people. Uh, Attackers are placing crying babies outside of people's homes in order to get them to come outside and attack them. No, Uh, that's a good one. A man in Bolivia woke up in a bathtub full of ice after someone had harvested his kidney. (laughs) (laughs) A man and a woman have cyber sexual relationship only later to discover that they are father and daughter. (laughs) 
Although some <laughs> urban legends, you know, they can be harmless fun. These tend to have negative consequences because they spread fear and mistrust throughout communities. Now, now you weren't you weren't saying that last one was harmless fun, right? Because uh, that was definitely not harmless or fun. I mean, I guess it depends on your flavor of fun. You know, not for me, but I mean, more power to you, I guess. Why do we believe these, right? That's the question. Like, why do we believe these and why do people share them? And the British Journal of Psychology recently conducted a study that suggests that the way that our brains have evolved can help explain why we fall so hard for urban legends. Psychologists have long held that our brains are predisposed to two types of information above all others. One is survival information, uh, and two is information that helps us build and maintain social relationships. So, Dave, our brains are survival machines, and for much of our history, being able to maintain complex relationships kept us alive, and we're naturally predisposed to this sort of information, and it may help us explain the power behind these types of stories, despite the lack of evidence to give them credibility. The perfect urban legend or conspiracy theory is one that involves human interaction and poses some sort of threat to the everyday average person. Now, you mentioned Hell's Angels earlier. So while there are urban legends, there are real threats out there. Like Hell's Angels is a real thing. And so two quick stories about them. One, uh, they recently came to my dad's business. My dad's a small business owner. They came and like checked out some guy's bike to see if they wanted to, I guess, steal it. I'm not sure. Very bizarre. Um, the second one is my high school French teacher. She used to take a motorcycle trip out west every summer, and her and her husband went out one summer, and Hell's Angels stole her bike. Man, so did she, like, flash their headlights at them or something? Like, what happened? She was probably screaming at them in French. <laughs> in my mind, they stole their clothes as well. Uh, that makes the story better, that they just left them naked. But they may have, she may have seems, still had her clothes. Seems like embellishment. Uh, I don't know what they would use their, their clothes for, but... So, we will end this week's episode with our first listener-submitted question. So, this one uh, comes from a question submitted by our buddy and listener, Andrew Steele. And so, uh, we'll throw it out to you, commute audience. If you have a topic you would like us to cover, get a hold of us. You can uh, drop us a note on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can head to our website and send us a note. That's commutethepodcast.com. We're always happy to talk about whatever it is you want to know more about. So, Andrew wanted to know... Can a television star live off of royalties forever? Do these people that are on syndicated television programs, like The Office I mentioned in the open, do they make money every single time the episodes air? So, Jay, growing up, I had kind of a television ritual. Okay, so I'd come home from school, play outside, basketball, baseball, whatever, and then I'd come inside and watch syndicated reruns of one of my favorite television shows ever, Seinfeld. Do you have any shows like that? Something like The Office. You know, both of us really liked The Office when it was on, and we still watch it now. That is before it went to Peacock, but still, you know what I mean? Wow. Taking some unnecessary shots at Peacock, but... uh, I didn't expect to throw in a shot at Peacock, but I don't have Peacock. You two fans and Peacock fans are not going to (laughs) be happy with this episode. Um, No, I don't really have shows that I watch. I'm not really like a watch a show again type of guy. So, Jay, if you are a lead actor or a lead actress who's lucky enough to land a gig on a hit show that does have rerun and syndication potential. You may have found, may, hard may, you may have found what I will refer to as the golden goose of acting. When any show gets picked up for syndication on cable TV, like my days of watching Seinfeld on TBS, or picked up for streaming by companies like Netflix or Hulu, some of the actors get paid what is called royalties. Does everyone on the show get paid, though, you ask? And that's really where Andrew's question comes from. Not necessarily. 
The stars get the money, and the background actors get the memories. You like that? Just came up with that. Well, I'm actually sitting here while you're talking. I'm trying to figure out how much money the kids from A Christmas Story make. Okay, you, you dig into that while I continue. Okay, because uh, it's just of, been hitting me, and I'm like, I got to know the answer to this. So a lot of this has to do with ownership and contract structure. So the Screen Actors Guild, an organization that, among other things, represents the interests of the acting talent, typically secures relatively small payments for any actor that took part in a show or a movie that has any kind of rerun potential. But things vary wildly, and a lot of that information is top secret. So let's examine a few legendary shows. How about Friends? We've talked about Friends before on this, uh, this podcast and my extreme dislike of it. Friends ran for 10 seasons, 1994 to 2004, and in 2015, USA Today reported that Warner Brothers earned $1 billion per year from Friends reruns, and an estimated 2%, about $20 million each, goes to each of the show's stars as part of their contract negotiations. Yeah, that's so much higher than I expected it would be. It's insane, and, and it really just goes down from there with one exception. So, how about the previously mentioned Seinfeld? Running for nine seasons, Seinfeld is considered one of the greatest shows of all time. Jerry Seinfeld and co-creator Larry David take home most of the bacon, though, because the others, notably the actors playing George, Elaine, and Kramer, don't own a stake in the show. So New York Magazine has reported that Seinfeld and David each make $400 million per syndication cycle. How about a classic show? For that, let's look at Gilligan's Island. The famous sitcom seems like it had a ton of episodes, but it actually only aired for three seasons. While the show still airs on channels like TV Land, the stars of the show were reportedly left out in the cold on syndication money. Don Wells, who played Marianne on the famous show, told Forbes magazine in 2016, a misconception is that we all must be wealthy just rolling in the dough because we get residuals. We didn't get a dime, she continued. Sherwood Schwartz, our producer, though, reportedly made about $90 million on the reruns alone. And Jay, let's land this plane here and answer Andrew's question best that we can. How about a personal favorite of you and I, The Office? When The Office left Netflix, it was reported that NBC Universal paid around $500 million for the show for five years following a bidding war with Netflix. Well, according to The Hollywood Reporter, most of the actors on The Office won't see very much money outside of a small amount paid to them from the Screen Actors Guild, like I mentioned earlier, with studios now very rarely striking the type of deal that saw Friends or Jerry Seinfeld make an insane amount of money. No numbers have been reported on what each actor makes in syndication as of this recording, but every report that I could find assumes that only Steve Carell, who played Michael Scott, sees much of a yearly check. While the show was still on, Carell earned $175,000 per episode starting in season three, while his co-stars, John Krasinski, Jim, and Jenna Fisher, Pam, saw their salaries go from twenty k per episode the first two seasons to around hundred k from season three on. So just to kind of bring it back around to the Christmas story thing, uh, so you, as most people know, they show this movie for what, like an entire day straight. I can't find anything about the kid who played Ralphie, but I did find a quote from Zach Ward, 47 years old, who portrayed the 1983 film's maniacal bully, Scott Farkas. Okay, so uh, he Farkas. told... He told 
page six. Uh, this is his quote. He said, he had yellow eyes. He says, you're going to be so disappointed. Ward told page six. It's basically about $1,800 every two years. And it comes in as Canadian money because we shot in Canada. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's the best way that could have ended. All syndication is not created equal. It seems he had yellow eyes. I just, I could keep yelling. He's got yellow eyes all night. I just think that's the funniest line ever. But that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Man, what a fun one. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Big thanks to Andrew Steele for submitting that question for this week's episode. And remember, you can submit a question that you'd like us to consider. We'd be happy to check it out. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can connect with us on our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We will see you next week.